Thank you so much, Taylor. Yeah, so last night I'm doing the Christmas Christmas lights on, on my roof, and I get a group text, and it's from Luke, and he says, I got a, I got a fever, and I don't think I could preach. Would anyone like to preach? And then I just immediately, I didn't even think. I just went, yes, I'll do it. I love it. I have a sick thing about me. I love this kind of stuff. Like, I get excited about the moment where there's no expectations. You can't hold it against me if it's a terrible sermon. I had like a couple hours to get this thing together. And I love those sorts of environments. And so um, I stand before you here today. Front and back, baby. Front and back. Handwritten. Card stock. This is our sermon today. And... It is the last sermon in the Acts series that we have been in. The Acts of the Apostles, a.k.a. the Acts of the Holy Spirit. So I am, it's like a Christmas miracle for me right now, other than the fact that we're going to pray for Luke. Lord, bless Luke, be with Luke, heal Luke, even right now. In Jesus' name, amen. It's amazing to me the way that messages and messaging can so impact our trajectories, our emotional, our performances. We see it all over the place. I remember when I was in high school, I was a freshman. I was on the wrestling team as a freshman in high school and I had wrestled in junior high. So I was a little bit better, like barely better than a few other people in my weight division in my school. So I was wrestling varsity. I was wrestling varsity as a freshman, which was kind of cool, but it was a 103 pound weight division. So let's not like, there were only so many of us to go around in that weight division. But I remember it was our first ever dual meet and we had a competitive shot at winning things. And I was starting to get fired up. Like I watched, my dad always had me watch like the Rocky training sequences before I'd go in to any kind of a sporting event. And I do that to my kids now as well. So the legacy continues. The legacy continues. Rocky training sequences. The best one's Rocky three when they're running. Apollo Creed is wearing a crop top, a crop top and just like the short shorts. And there's the Italian stallion running down Santa Monica. I'm going to fill the sermon up with mostly these kind of things. And then we'll maybe look at a passage and then more of those kind of things. So I'm all fired up. I'm ready to wrestle. I'm ready to get in there. I could do this. It's my first one. It's a dual meet, so it's crowded. It was a competitive season. Uh, so we had a lot of folks there. The cheerleaders are out front. As a freshman young man, I'm like, this is going to be my moment. And I'm in the locker room before we go out there, getting fired up, getting fired up. And the captain of the wrestling team you know he's a student he's a senior he comes up to me and goes hey james come here i'm like, oh, what's going on yeah what's up what's up he goes all right the guy you're about to wrestle he's one of the best guys out there he's gonna beat you pretty badly so like you know trying to get pinned or something that was his message to me now i got those messages a lot in my high school career of wrestling but i remember it was like in that moment in that very nanosecond, it was like I had lost the match. I literally, my heart sunk, my mind sunk, and I walked out just like a, a, the walking dead. And I went onto the mat. And then almost immediately, the guy threw me in like a lateral drop. I'm in the air. I'm looking at the lights and making eye contact with the lights. And then with the cheerleaders in the front row, lights, cheerleaders, and just like, help me. 
help me pen done like i just heard this really negative message i digested it i started to believe it and then it just took over it just soaked my brain and i couldn't do otherwise i couldn't pull myself in any other kind of direction maybe i would have gotten beaten by that guy maybe not but it was a foregone conclusion the messages that i'm hearing and i don't think like i'm not a psychologist although I've benefited from psychologists and could probably benefit more from psychologists. I'm not a sociologist. I'm not a political scientist, but we don't have to be like a PhD in these areas to know that right now as a society and as individuals, we are just like inhaling negative messaging. We're inhaling discourses and ideas and narratives and thoughts and spectacles that are direct, directing us to like looky-loo traffic, looking at car accidents, one after the other. And it's not, some, it's not new necessarily, but in our world where it's served up to us personally and intimately and regularly, I know it's taken an effect. My students at Biola, and I have a, a, right now I have about 200 students, and sometimes I have up to 500 students. So I don't do like, I, don't, I haven't read an article on this right now. I don't have a stat for you. I had two hours and one piece of cardstock to prepare this message, so don't expect much. But I know personally, as my students come through in office hours, through email, through after-class conversations, they are treading water in a hurricane. That's a nice mixed metaphor. In a hurricane of anxiety and stress, and how about this word, foreboding, just foreboding. I'm so thankful that this morning, the, the passage that I get to preach on, and indeed, I'm not even going to preach the whole passage. I'm going to preach the last word of the passage, literally the last word in the scroll of Acts. I'm going to preach to us today and some other stuff. But I'm so happy that it's actually a wildly optimistic message. It's, so if the headwinds of negative discourse you feel like you are just getting blown over by again and again. Like remember Joe Biden trying to get up those stairs, that video that we all saw? Poor Joe just like couldn't make it up. It was just a bad I feel like that sometimes in my life, right? Like I just need to get this thing positive. I need to get this thing turned into something good and healthy and happy. I need my mindset better. I need my thoughts about the future to be set on something a little bit better. I just keep falling and I can't seem to get my footing. If that's where you're at today, you are going to, I hope and pray, experience a really optimistic message, or at least an optimistic word and verse. So this is at the very end of Acts, and you can follow along in Scripture if you'd like, or you can listen to me. But as you may recall, Acts began with resurrected Jesus and this wild-eyed message and mission. Jesus tells his followers, your agendas, they're interesting, they're cute, they're nice. I'm, I'm, I think it's fascinating that you have them. But if you want to be a part of something grander and bigger and something that is eternal and something that I'm up to, here's what is going to happen. The Holy Spirit 
that is God with us, that is God in the community, in the individual who loves Jesus, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the Eskatu taste case, and to the ends, the furthest reaches of the earth. And these points on the map are not just like geography or latitude and longitude or GPS coordinates. Like, oh, we'll go this far, then we'll go a little further, then we'll go a little further. Rather, these were, as we've talked about in this series already, these were like profound ethno-geographic boundaries, boundaries that had never been crossed. Think about the metaphorical crossing the railroad tracks, moving into towns where previously human communities have not mixed or mingled. And all of a sudden in Christ, these walls are going to be breaking down in dramatic ways. How is it going to happen? And what's the game plan? And I got a chance to preach the sermon with the greatest title I've ever preached. Going God knows where to do God knows what. Love that title. Still think it's a great tattoo. If you have any last minute Christmas ideas, going God knows where to do God knows what. And that truly is what they were given. And so today we get to see the very end of this. We've watched them move through these territories and advance in circumstances that are challenging. And look at this, the very last couple lines of Acts 28. We have Paul of Tarsus, who's one of these main sort of protagonists, not the main protagonist, the Holy Spirit is, but one of the main protagonists, he's in Rome now, which is if, if the narrative of Acts goes like this, it starts in, to use ancient language, the navel of the world, of the Jewish world, Jerusalem, and it ends in the navel of the Gentile, non-Jewish sort of, that's, that's a good description there. It ends in Rome. Okay, this is where it starts, where it ends. And we're in Rome, the ends of the earth, insofar as the narrative of Acts is concerned. Verse uh, 20, well, it's chapter 28, verse 30 and 31, just two verses. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house, or his own rented area. I don't think he had a full house, probably an apartment. And welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God, and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and the last word in Acts. I want you all to say this with me. Akulotos. Akulotas. One more time and, um, and enjoy it. Have some fun with it. Like have a good time. Okay, ready one more time. Akulotas. That's a good word. That's a great word. Another tattoo idea. That's a great word. Akulotas. What does that word mean? That word translated variously, it means unhindered. It's an adverb. It's the last thing in the entire scroll, that expensive papyrus manuscript that was penned by the, the hand of probably a scribe at the dictation of this guy, Luke, to tell the most important story he could think needed to be told, he ends that really expensive scroll with this word, akulotas, unhindered. How many of you, you need a little bit more unhindered in your life? 
You need a little bit more mobility in your life. You're living under the claustrophobic conditions of the pressures and the fears and the constrictions and the battles that you don't even want to be in, but you feel dragged into and the spectacles of violence and hatred and whatever else. How many of you could, le- you could use a little bit more space, a little bit more, a little less hindrance, unhindered. This is where the story ends. It starts in Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit, and then it ends in Rome. And there Paul is, unhindered. I want to do a quick tour in reverse, kind of like Ghost of Christmas Past. Just watched Spirited last night with my family, so I'm really into the whole Dickens thing. I want to do a quick look at the circumstances. Because what do we see is the heart and the posture and the attitude and the wide-eyed optimism and the you can't stop him if you try because he's with the Holy Spirit and with him he'll fly. I told my wife I'm going to rhyme the whole sermon. That's another thing I'm going to try to do. She's like, people can get saved if you do that. You can't stop Paul. We know his heart and his posture. We know the community that he's around. It's that community that you're like, what is up with you people? Why are you smiling? Why do you have eyes that have such empathy even while there's so much angst all around you and there's so much hostility directed at you? How are you people of shalom and peace in a context that is agonistic and competitive and about domination and yet you navigate this like these beautiful ballerinas going from glory to glory? How does he do this? I'm going to answer it for you. It's not because of his circumstances. It is not because of his circumstances. Let's go in reverse. How did he get to Rome? He went to Rome, it says, Rome, uh, Acts 28, verse 16. When he got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. Oh, that's kind of cool. He's got his own like security detail. He's a really important guy and and he's going to be no, that's not why a soldier is guarding him. He got to Rome because this unhindered wild-eyed optimist in Jesus, he was unhindered but he was shackled. He was he was bound to the empire. And he was moving at their behest or so they thought. So he shows up to Rome. He is a prisoner under guard in Rome. Okay, how did he get there in terms of uh, the vehicle? Well, I'm going to keep moving backwards. Acts 27, verse 18 to 25. We took, well, they're on a grain ship, so they're on a ship. Any of you ever sailed? Any sailors out there? Who sails? A couple of you. Anyone else? Don't be, don't be ashamed. It's okay. It's good. I don't sail. They were on a boat. And it says this, verse 18. A storm hits. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they, they began, the crew begins to throw the cargo overboard. On the through day, th- third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands 
When neither the sun nor stars appeared for many days, the storm continued raging. We were finally, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. Like, I don't like turbulence on an airplane. I don't like it at all. Where do you look when there's turbulence? Anyone like me, when, when it gets really turbulent, where are you looking? I'll tell you where I'm looking. I'm looking at the, 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 the flight attendants. I'm like, how are they looking? How, what's going on with them? And so the, the airplane's shaking. I don't fly that often. And I'm like, is this it? Like, is this it? Or is this the thing? Is this the one where all of a sudden I'm going to bond with the people next to me? And we're going to know this is the last moment we're going to have together. And this is, it's happening now. And you look back. And if you see the flight attendants talking about their true crime podcast and like thinking about their Thanksgiving plans, you're like, okay, we're not going to die. If you see them real sober and serious, please be buckled. You're like, okay, this isn't good. So here's Paul. He's on a ship, ancient sailing. There are plenty of vessels at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea that bear witness to the fact it was super dangerous and risky. And he's looking at this crew of professionals. And what are they doing? They're throwing like all their stuff overboard. Like there goes the, the laptop. There goes the iPad. There goes all of their stuff overboard. And he's going, well, we know this isn't, this isn't, tri this trip is not going as planned. Where was he before? Uh, let's keep moving backwards. We're moving backwards. For three chapters, three and a half chapters, Paul is on the Eastern Mediterranean in a little town called Caesarea Maritima. If you've ever been to Israel, I've been to Caesarea Maritima. I, I've never been. Well, go look at the side. This is the world travelers over here. This is the. There's no sailors, but we do have some world travelers. This, Caesarea Maritima is a beautiful spot. Coastal, amazing. Paul, full-blown um, Jewish Pharisee turned Jesus follower, he's in Caesarea Maritima and he's under arrest for an undefined amount of time. There's no like habeas corpus. There's no like time to trial. There are no clear guidelines. He's just there and he's under arrest in what would then there be like Gentile town because his own brothers and sisters of the house of Israel were so eager to grab him and try to kill him. They were so angry at him and they were so eager to see him perish that the Romans literally took him and held him prisoner to keep them safe and that he'd hold trial. So he's there for like multiple years without clear way forward. I want to say one thing about the storm. I'm, I forgot to say this, but I had two hours to prepare. So in the middle of that storm, Paul says something. Verse 21, he says, after they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up and said to them, men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Thanks, Paul. That's really helpful right now. We appreciate your advice. Wish we took it. Then you would have spared yourselves and the damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep your courage up because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of God, the God to whom I belong, these are non-Jewish, non-Christian folks, and the God whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has grac graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So verse 25, so keep up your courage, for I have faith in God that this will happen just as he told me. Moving backwards, Acts 21 to 23, a riot takes place, and Paul has also whispered something. 
The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. So you just get the picture of a, of a hurricane surrounding a maelstrom of, of what would be deeply fearful circumstances. And he just hears this whisper of God. You're mine. I've got you. Acts 19, keep rolling back. In Ephesus, there's another riot and uprising because so many people are turning to follow Jesus and away from a very lucrative idol-making industry. In Acts 18, Paul faces another legal challenge. And so this is the guy that just keeps, so to speak, getting sued and getting accused of things and misunderstood. I just want to do two more. Acts 18 is in Corinth. It says this, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent. I am with you. No one is going to attack or harm you. I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for about a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. Another like Holy Spirit check-in. It's interesting how God does not lay out the plan for him and doesn't give him like, this will be what will happen in a week and a month and a year. There's no like three-year plan, but there's enough of a presence that he just keeps reminding him, I'm with you, I got you. The last one I want to look at, this is the far back as we'll go, Acts 16. Here Paul is in Roman Philippi. And another misunderstanding slash public spectacle is stirred up against him and his team. And he's thrown into a Roman prison. So here he is, once again, shackled, bound. And this is not the kind of prison where you're going to get like an hour of recreation and be able to maybe watch some TV and, and have a meal guaranteed. These are, these are just holding caves, basically. And it says this, verse uh, 16, Acts 16, verse 20. So they brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and they are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to practice. The crowd joined the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. Okay, so like the word flogged, that's like a fun sounding word, isn't it? It's like on a Christmas bucket list. Like, let's go and sing some Christmas carols. We'll do some Christmas shopping. We'll get flogged and then we'll watch It's a Wonderful Life. It just sounds so sweet and nice, like almost like frolic or something. But it is, it is one of the most brutal visions of Roman judicial savagery you could imagine. I mean, I'm not going to ask for showing hands, but how many of y'all been really beat up before? Right? And you physically are just getting beat down. And it's not stopping, and the police aren't going to come to stop it. The police are doing it in this situation. And then where do we find Paul? Beaten, bloodied, stuff's got to be broken. I mean, they're not, they're not aiming to do no damage. These are trained beaters. There's a fun word. When he received, um, so the Roman jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. He received these orders. He put them in the inner cell, fastened their feet in the stocks unhindered question mark about midnight Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them I'm gonna stop there I could keep going back further and further but what I wanted you to see is the circumstances surrounding this last word unhindered and free and with a quiet confidence 
None of the circumstances are favorable or good or encouraging. It truly is a series of unfortunate and terrible events that he has been navigating with his community. And yet there it stands at the end. What is with the quiet confidence? Why the akolutas? Why the unhinderedness? And here's my contention on this morning on a sermon that I've had a couple hours to prepare on cardstock, two-sided. Here's my point, or here's what I think. I think Paul is at the epicenter and the beautiful heart of God's shalom. He's so closely wrapped up and his face is so fixed on the face of Jesus, metaphorically and like in his prayers and in his postures, he's he's just unmovable. And circumstances cannot touch that. They cannot touch that. There's this line that he's gonna write to This last verse I want to read today, and I'm going to tell you a story, and then we're done. We're going to worship a little, close off. He writes to this community that that he's in Acts finally landed in. He finally got there. Beforehand, he had written in this long letter where he's telling, telling them about things that are most important to his heart and things he thinks are most important to being human together. And he says to them, I'm going to read it in Romans chapter eight. You, however, y'all, second person plural, however, are not in the realm. Oops, I'm sorry. That's a good verse too, but it's not the, the one I wanted. Here's a really good one. He says to the crew, what then shall we say in response to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? By the way, this is not a statement of political power. This is not a statement of leveraging the networks that we all have to make people think like Christians and act like Christians and being good little boys and good little girls. This is not what he's talking about. He had zero power. The Christians were nobodies and nothings. No seats in Congress, no caucuses, no prayer brunches, no nothing, no tax write-off forgiven, nothing. They were zeros in the empire. They were jokes, misunderstood, weak, as their critics said, a movement of slaves and women. That's how they were looked upon. So when you hear this, you cannot read historically political power here. You cannot read, get signatures, get it on the ballot, make it happen. Let's push things through like Christians through Congress. All that has to go down the toilet. That is a new, that is a Johnny come lately idea. Maybe there's some good stuff to it. I'm not talking about that today. What I'm talking about is what Paul is saying. If God is for us, who can be against us? He didn't even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us everything? He basically says, God is the greatest real estate baron, greatest giver of gifts. He owns everything. He knows everything. And if he's given us his most precious thing, why are we living in scarcity, people? Why are we running around like Gollum, clutching at a ring, thinking people are going to take our precious from us? I almost did a Gollum impression, but I held back. Who will bring any charges against those whom God has chosen? This is Paul. There we go. Paul is a guy who has had charges brought against him. If you've ever been there, not fun, I'm sure. Who can bring charges against those whom God has justified? Who then is the one that condemned, who's condemned? No one. 
Jesus Christ, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and he's also interceding for us, like right now. If you're just checking out this whole thing called Jesus, and you're being, you've been talked to it about it, and, and there are some interesting things about following Jesus. One of them is we actually believe that in his infinite divine capacities, that Jesus actually thinks about you. Like he's actually actively thinking about you. I forget that way too much. He's actually interceding. Who shall, not, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Then he quotes a psalm. No. In all these things, we are, we're survivors. Nope. In all these things, we're going to make it through one step at a time. Nope. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am convinced, one of the greatest lines in Western literature, I'm about to read to you. I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, nor present nor future, nor any powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is why Paul could sit with all circumstances against him, with the headwinds going at 100 miles an hour, and with his band of strange messianic folks their eyes would be full of hope and their hearts full of purpose. And if you ask Paul, Paul, was it a lonely life? You never married. You didn't have the family and the kids. The last real estate deal we've ever heard you doing was renting an apartment in Rome so you could be close to the guards that, that are assigned to you. Your political future is standing before the emperor to find out exactly what the charges would be and what the summa supplicia, the ultimate punishment, would be for you. Paul, are you a, you must be stressed out. You must have a lot of anxiety, wondering about your purpose. Who will I be? What flavor of coffee best defines me? And, and what you would hear again and again, and I know this because we have a lot of his journals and literature here. What we hear again and again is the guy says, you have no idea. I marvel at the life I'm living. He was probably jacked up to look at. If you've ever seen folks that have been beaten regularly, he's not a, a handsome man. He probably couldn't walk very quickly. His eyesight might have been messed up. And there he is, unhindered. And people, I want more of that. I want to lean into that. We are not doing spiritual formation or Jesus following in a vacuum. We have to remember that. We are walking in a place of prevailing winds. And instead of using the pulpit to try to bash on the prevailing winds and say how bad they are and all the bad things our country's going through and oh my gosh, these midterm elections, they're more important than any elections before. I know I say that every single time, but this time it's true. Instead of getting tangled up, and I'm not saying don't be a good citizen, and I'm not saying don't deeply consider your role as a citizen in the United States of America. Fine. But never confuse that with the unhindered calling of God that I don't care what the situation is, we can live a life of freedom unhindered. Not with the placebo or not with the sort of Christian Prozac of I'm always happy. That is not what this is either but my heart is full. My mind is set on God's purposes. 
Um, okay. I have a story I want to tell. And I was debating telling it or not. I don't know, but I'm just going to tell it. It was actually interesting because Rachel, that song you sang, I don't know where's Rachel at, but she might be. Oh, there's Rachel. The last song he sang, Do It Again. That was for me like an anthem during maybe the hardest season as a parent. And once you become a parent, my grandma, she was 80, um, 80 years old when she told me this. She said, James, uh, you know, I was newly married. Ha- Wait to have kids if you can. Because I go, wow, that's nice, grandma. She goes, because once you do, you never stop worrying about them. She's like, I'm 80 and I still worry about my kids. I still think about them. Any parents feel me on that one, right? Like, and it just seems like they get my daughter's in junior high. It just kind of keeps going. It turns out that's not an easy time. Everyone kept telling me, ah, teenage years are the easiest years. Turns out, no, they're not. Now, no one ever told me that. But I remember becoming a, a foster parent for the first time. And you're really, you, you're really naive about a lot of things. And you're also, your heart's really full with a lot of other things. And, um, I remember like that sense there was there was just particular days where I'd come home especially early on in the process and your world is in chaos it it does for the first about month your life does turn upside down and you need just I I remember I came home one day and everyone was crying in the house we had two little girls two little girls Nikki and Sade and my my two bio kids Brixton and Michelle at the time and they're they're crying and my wife's kind of crying. And I come home from work and I go in the closet and I just start crying. I'm just like, everyone's crying, Lord, what is happening? And I'm not, I didn't see Jesus's face. It wasn't like I looked over and there he was like, you know, baked into like a, I don't know, side of a tortilla or something. But I, I, I was on my knees in the closet crying and we're about week and a half into this thinking, Lord, I've ruined my life. I've destroyed everything. And I look over and I just had this profound picture of Jesus suffering for us on behalf of us. And it was like this moment of solidarity. It was kind of like, oh my gosh, I'm actually in this thing. Like I'm, I'm at the cutting edge right now in my life of God's calling. And yes, it's hard. And yes, it's painful. And yes, it's scary. And yes, I don't know where it's going to go. But my gosh, I'm alive. And I'm not being chicken. And I'm not avoiding hard things because it will mess up my perfectly manicured 21st century beach city life. It was like this really amazing moment. And it just kept growing. And as the hardships hit, and there was one point in time where um, our, our youngest, Zion, when, when we said yes to Zion, they told us, he was just an infant, and they told us, um, so 50-50 chance he's going to be development, developmental disability, and some other significant headwinds are going to be facing him. Would you still want him? And we, we really sense God saying, you're saying yes. You're going to say yes. And you're going to take him in knowing it's probably going to adoption in a number of, in a year. And this could be some challenges. And I remember with Zion, I, I struggle so hard with that because I know, I, you know, we, we all have loved ones that have raised kids with, with challenges and exceptionalities and, and, and uh, dis- disabilities. And I don't know if I'm ready for that, Lord. I, I don't know. And, um, and then there was some other health challenges that they said about him. Uh, he actually was failure to thrive, which is, I didn't know at the time I was naive is one of the most dangerous things an infant could ever be, which means he was, he was not gaining weight. He was not eating. It was nothing. And I remember, um, feeling just so at a loss in a panic. And I'm like, Bray, I don't, 
I don't know. What's, and another doctor said he's going to have microcephaly, which is where your head is too small and and your your body won't won't grow. And they said there's nothing you could do about it. It's just what it is. And I mean, I, I'm I'm literally skipping things right now. There are so, there were so many other headwinds, and yet Bray, my wife of faith, she kept getting from the Lord this sense of like, no, he God has a calling on his life, and and there's a deep purpose here. And so I'm not going to listen. Not that we took every step. We, we saw every specialist you could see. We did all the stuff. But my wife was convinced I'm not listening in my heart to the fear that is screaming at us about this child. Because he's God's kid and there's something special. And I remember like a come to Jesus moment regarding Zion in my, my, in my heart where I just surrendered. I'm like, God, okay, I am done worrying about this. We're living our life. And we, we went forward and... Amazing things happened. Every boundary they said he wouldn't break through, he broke through and then some. Every problem they said he had turns out like his failure to thrive from a number of circumstances, he began to eat. And all of a sudden, he be- we, I think Amy Gepner, where's Amy? I think I saw Amy here. Is she Amy here? No, there she is. Amy would pray for a hunger on this child. Like, God, give him a hunger. Like, I wanted him to be just a fat little kid. Just, you know, just like give me any food. And this little guy just started eating and thriving. And as they kept taking measurements of him, it turns out his head's not small. He's just a little guy. He's just a little guy. And before putting him in a TK, all that stuff came back up again. Because it's not like a one and done battle, I found, at least in my life with kids and stuff. And all this stuff came back, and I just started really struggling because I'm like, Lord, does he got some social problems? Is there some things? I don't know. I don't have any things to base it off of. And I was really struggling, and I was really fearful, and I was fearing about just like spiritual warfare. I don't know. I had all these fears in my heart. And I gave it up to the Lord this one morning. I went on this run. I put him in a stroller, and I went on this run. And it was like this long, gnarly run. And I was just going for it. I'm like, God, I can't, I, I can't live anymore questioning, do you have this kid or not? Do you have this kid or not? I'm running, I'm running. And all of a sudden, we're de- right by the whale wall. And I get clipped from behind. A bicyclist was going maybe like 20 miles an hour. I don't know how. He was going super fast. Clips me from behind. Zion's in a stroller. I fall over Zion onto the stroller, the bike's on top of me, and I'm thinking to myself, this kid's gonna lose a limb, this kid's gonna get a head injury. It was one of the worst accidents I've ever been in. And I was, a, you know that feeling as a parent? It's like, focus, and I'm just like, I, I fall, and I immediately, I get up, and I just grab Zion out, and I hold him, and I'm like, Zion, 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 are you okay, Zion? He's just in shock. He's just in shock, and I'm checking, and the guy keeps him coming over. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm like, dude, get away from me right now. Get away from me right now. I, I just need space. And, and I'm here holding Zion and checking his body. And then finally, he comes out of shock. He starts crying. I check his fingers. I check his toes. No injuries. Nothing has happened. The dude that clipped me is wearing a Biola parent T-shirt. Now, I teach at Biola. So I'm like, okay, Lord, I don't ever see those in the South Bay. And here's the funny part. He reeked of marijuana, just reeked of it, right? And so I'm like, okay, something's not adding up. Your typical Biola parent isn't a pothead. Okay, this is a weird one. And, and it was like, and, and where the accident happened, and this is part why I hesitated sharing it, because it's sort of so deeply personal that I know some of you are like, I don't know if I get that. I had a vision when I was in my early 20s about that very space, and it was a calling to the South Bay I sensed it as. And it was this really interesting dream. I'll tell you about it some other time. But, and it was this, this moment where God confirmed, like, this is a safe place for you. 
this is your safe space. I'm here with you right now and I have you. And so I, I get done holding Zion, making sure he's okay. Now he's kind of not crying anymore. I'm like bribing him. I'm going to get you stuff. Uh, I'm okay. The, the thing's a wreck. His bike's a wreck. Everything's just trashed. But we're, he's okay. And, and all of a sudden it hits me. I know where I'm standing. I'm standing right where I was in that vision, a dream I had. And this Biola dad thing or this Biola parent thing was like God winking at me. And it was like God said to me, and I, I promise you it was a breakthrough moment for me. He said to me, James, do you get it now? He's not your kid. He's my kid. I will protect him from whatever he needs protection from. And you will never have to worry about him that I don't have him. It was the weirdest moment. So I only say that because all these little whispers you get in the scriptures, like, oh, that's just Bible stuff. I actually think God does things like this. And if, we're, if we tune into it a little bit more, not always, but we could see and be confirmed, like we can be unhindered and free in his presence. Anyway. Again, I had two hours to prepare this, and, and, I, and so I don't have like a real slick poem to end it with or something. But I wanted to encourage like each and every one of us. Um, by the way, he went to TK, and his, we had a meeting with the teacher, and we kind of told a little bit of his backstory and a little bit of his life, and she was completely shocked. She said literally he is the, like, the best student she has. Socially, he's like the most popular kid at that school. Like, it was one after the other. We always joke, this kid's going to become like a multi-billionaire and like, he'll be nails in the boardroom, but he'll be a real sweet Christian. Unhindered. I'm, I went 40 minutes and I thought, I'm like, if I get to 17 minutes, I'll be stoked on this sermon. So long story at the end there, not sure how I tied that one all the way in. Thank you for letting me share it. Not that you had a choice, but, um, and, and Rachel, would you come up? We're going to do, we're going to end off with some communion which is right over here and it it's the, the the grape juice represents the blood of Jesus and the little wafers represent his body and it's like Paul said in Romans 8 like he gave all of this stuff for us all of it and um, and I'm, I'm here to testify to you as, as we go to prayer I want to stand before you and testify to you I actually believe this stuff I really actually believe this stuff and I actually believe that all of our lives can be so unhindered regardless of circumstances and it's available for every single one of us. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for just the way that you have worked in our lives and thank you for your faithfulness. We pray God right now that um, you would, we would turn our hearts to you more frequently and ferociously and see your goodness. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, thanks. Amen. Why don't we stand together as we end off our time in worship? Praising him unhindered and free because he's given that to us in this place. You give life. You give life, you are love, you bring light to the darkness, you give hope, you restore every heart that is broken and great. 
And it's your breath in our lungs So we pour out our praise We pour out our praise It's your breath in our lungs So we pour out our praise to you only It's your breath in our lungs So we pour out our praise We pour out our praise It's your breath in our lungs So we pour out our praise to you only We sing all the earth and all the earth will shout your praise our hearts will cry these bones will sing great Shout your praise, our hearts will cry, these bones will sing. Great are you, Lord. Sing all the earth, and all the earth will shout your praise. Our hearts will cry, these bones will sing. And great are you, Lord. And great are you, Lord. Sing great. Great are you, Lord. God, uh, we say that you're great. We say it as a family together and those joining us just exploring faith in Jesus that you are great. And... Uh, we thank you, God, for the ways that you are at work in every single one of our lives. God, thank you. We praise you that we see that on the cross that you did not spare your best. And God, when we see that physical proof of the unfailing, self-giving love of God for us, your, your best poured out for us, Jesus, you gave of your whole self. You took our sin on your shoulders and you allowed it to crush you that we might be reconciled to you. When we see that kind of self-giving love, God, we know that you're at work in our lives. So we pray that whatever circumstances we're in right now, whatever circumstances might come, God, would we be so grounded in that reality, so grounded in the active love of God for us that it fills our hearts with hope and purpose. As James said, not the Christian Prozac of I'm always happy all the time, but knowing that in the thick of it, in the storm, in the midst of the suffering, there's a God of love at work. 
So we pray that you'd help us to step into that reality and step into the mission and calling that you've invited us into, knowing that that's the sweet spot. As we celebrate communion right now, Lord, we remember your finished work on the cross for us, your blood shed, your body broken, that we might be reconciled to God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we close out here, we invite you to celebrate communion kind of on your own. It's a moment of kind of reflection and pause before we go on with our Sunday. But have an awesome day. Happy Thanksgiving. And we love you guys.